Welcome everybody to this edition of the Q&A Forum. Uh, just a, quick, a bit of a quick recap to what this is. Uh, first of all, it's in person but also online. And uh, what I say will be preserved on YouTube but also we'll put it out as a podcast too so you can listen to individual answers if you want. So this is something we started a while ago. Um, people submit questions online and I share uh, some thoughts. Um, hopefully I do so thinking, okay, what does God wisely teach us about uh, this topic through what he teaches us in scripture. So uh, that's my goal. And people that submit questions, they say whether or not they're willing to have their, um, <clears throat> with their name shared. If they do, they can have a supplemental if, if they want. So with that, we'll just get right into it. So here's the first question. I struggle with understanding end times theology. Why are there so many differing opinions <clears throat> excuse me, on when the rapture will occur, pre, mid, post, or if one even exists? Everyone I listen to from differing thought groups all make statements like, the Bible is clear, yet how can that be with so many believers that don't agree on the subject? <clears throat> Excuse me, so great question. Thank you. Kristen Stouffer has submitted this. She said it was okay to have her, her name stated. So this can be a very confusing topic, so I just want to acknowledge that off the top. Um, even in the question, some people might have been hearing phrases that make them a bit confused or they're not sure. So I want to provide a bit of explanation right off the top. So, <clears throat> excuse me, end times theology. So this is, this is sometimes called eschatology for people who study different parts of, you know, the theological world. So in the New Testament, eschatos is a word that, it's a Greek word that means end or last. So eschatology is the study of the end times or the last things. And when people study this topic, there's a lot of questions that come up. What will happen at the end of human history? Uh, what occurs when Jesus returns as judge and savior? All those sorts of, of things. Uh, more specifically, people ask questions like, okay, well, what will the lead up look like? Are we close to that lead up now? What are the specific signs that will happen and in what order? And so it's good to kind of frame this in the larger picture. So according to the New Testament, we are in the last days but it's been going on for a while. So according to the New Testament theology, the last days are really, you know, you know the time of the early apostles until Jesus returns. So it's, a, it's, you know, it's been going on for over 2,000 years. But when people ask about it today, they're specifically thinking, are we towards the end of that period? Is Jesus returning soon uh, or not? Another phrase that came up in the question is rapture. So that might be a word that you have or haven't heard. It's the idea that Jesus will return to rapture or take away uh, his people in a secret event before this official second coming, which will be more visible and more public. Um, some people in this scenario are left behind for a period of tribulation and pain on earth uh, with no other believers around them. And so this, this has not been a dominant uh, view of eschatology uh, throughout the course of church history. It became more prominent uh, in the 19th century. And um, <clears throat> uh, for, for a variety of reasons and, and kind of became popular in the Left Behind series of, of books and, and TV shows. So what I do want to say is this, kind of, especially with a focus on rapture theology, is a part of a larger system of thought called dispensationalism. And so again, dispensationalism kind of became more prominent in uh, the 19th century uh, with a certain couple of people. And so it's interesting, that perspective or way of interpreting end times theology hasn't been very prominent it's become more prominent recently. It's become so prominent so quickly that in a lot of evangelical churches, they don't even realize 
they're adhering to a dispensational theology, and they don't even realize that other systems exist. It's just become so dominant in modern evangelical churches. So it's good to um, include that word dispensationalism in there. So, so let me note also, speculation about the end times comes up uh, increasingly when we have wide-scale uh, human trauma on earth. And so there's a lot of increasing literature and speculation around World War II. Made sense, right? And so why, why is that? Well, it's mostly because of what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Um, he, he's asked for, you know, signs. Um, and this is what he says, verses 4 to 13. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See so that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because, um, sorry, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So you can see in Matthew 24, there's a lot of signs and things that are identified. And so you can look at, okay, think of the war in Ukraine, think of the pandemic. Uh, it's easy to find famines or to hear of earthquakes. The phrase, the love of uh, many will grow cold, is interesting. A lot of people look at that. They look around the world. They might cite greed or euthanasia or environmental problems or abortion or human trafficking or Christian persecution. There's a lot of various things people will cite, say, well, this is all a part of that. And so central, I just want to give that background. So fundamental to the question is why so many differing opinions? And I think the fundamental answer to that is because the Bible says some things about end times theology and eschatology, not all things. It says some things, not all things. And I think that should tell us something because uh, eschatology and end times theology and different theories are important, but they shouldn't be all-consuming in my view. And so what happens is sometimes we kind of we lose a sense of proportionality. So we learn a lot about salvation. We learn a lot about God's character, a lot about being the church, a lot about you know, all these, the body of Christ, all these things um, with a certain amount of clarity. There, there's more ambiguity around a certain limited number of passages. So uh, more recently, dispensationalism, as I said, and kind of in short, it's a certain theory which sees that God, God kind of interacts with his people in certain uh, historical periods in certain ways and certain dispensations of, of human history. Um, but this is a certain way, dispensationalism around interpreting certain biblical passages. And I think you need to be careful because sometimes I think what's going on is stuff is read into certain passages which seem to give us a certain amount of clarity around the future. But some of that information may not have been intended by the original authors. So we need to be, to be careful. Uh, another part of the question says... Uh, you know, people say from various thought groups, the Bible is clear. Me, I just, I just don't think people are being honest when they say that. Um, when it comes to end time theology, there's things that Jesus says about, you know, Matthew 24. Uh, we look at Second Thessalonians. A lot is invested in Revelation 20 to do with what's called the millennium. Um, 
what is the nature of that millennium? Is it a literal thousand years? Is it before, after a rapture? There's so many different theories about what that is, and a lot of those theories are heavily invested on how to interpret, kind of a challenging passage to interpret in Revelation uh, 20. Uh, and to be honest, I don't know why people like uh, clarity and certainty around certain things. There's a lot of books being sold on trying to extrapolate specifics around end times theology, and people have various motives for doing that. I'm, I'm sure some of them are noble. But So a closing note, I just think with end times theology, we need to kind of not miss the forest uh, for the trees. And I think we need to focus on what we do know, and we can study it and try to find information out. That's great. I think the risk is we lose the forest for the trees, that God is, you know, in Christ is going to return, renew and renovate all things in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, but we can't lose the proportionality of what God calls us to do in the meantime. So uh, four main things that we are told to do. We don't know when it'll happen. Uh, Jesus says as much in Matthew 24, uh, 36. We don't know when. And there's been so many books through history that have been written calculating. I'm going to extrapolate passages from Daniel and Ezekiel, and it says this, and blah, blah, blah. Um, we don't know. Um, why is there a delay? Some People were asking that question in the first century. In the Bible, to the Apostle Peter and to the second letter that bears his name, he says that, you know, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so there's a delay. God wants people to come to know him and to repent. Second, be ready. So constantly when you go through the passages, despite the specifics about what may or may not happen, prayerfulness and readiness is always focused on. You know, Mark 13, 35, keep awake or keep alert. You know not when the master of the house will come. So all those thief in the night passages uh, were to be ready. Uh, third emphasis is we're to live holy and godly lives. So I think there is a risk with, with end times theology. Sometimes we'll like hide away in a, you know, crouching over calculators, you know, hiding in bunkers. Uh, we're to live holy and godly lives and continue the work that the Lord has set out for us. Fourth, be loving and do God's work. So even though we will live in a context in a world where the love of many or most will grow cold, we are to be loving in that context and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So, um, Kristen, you'll, in a second you'll be invited to ask a supplemental if you want, but I wanted to highlight two resources that I think are helpful. So the first is called How Will the World End? and Other Questions About the Last Things and the Second Coming of Christ by Jeremy Reaney. It's meant for people without theological training. It's 90 short pages. It basically chronicles um, all the different major end times theory, theory, rapture theology, what is dispensationalism, what isn't it, and it goes through different... It's really helpful, and if people want to kind of a... If you feel very confused about it, there's a lot of different movements, a lot of different theories. This is a really good one to look at. Then a former professor of mine, Brian Irwin, and I did a podcast on this recently, so you may have heard that, I wrote a book, After Dispensationalism, Reading the Bible for the End of the World. And so he's written this book, and it's really about where we got to where we are in terms of all the different theories. He highlights how dispensationalism be, was very, it wasn't really kind of talked about much. It really became prominent in the 19th century, how that came to be, how it came to be dominant as a theory in many churches today, a specific way of interpreting certain passages. And then at the end, he gives us some interpretive principles to help about, hey, here's some things to keep in mind when looking at the Bible, trying to learn more about end times theology. So big topic, a great question. Uh, hopefully some of those things that I've said are helpful. Kristen, any uh, 
Any supplemental in light of that? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, the rapture, which is, you know, uh, in Thessalonians, Paul talks about a passage of Jesus returning and believers meeting him in the air. So that's where that comes from, mostly. But even within how the rapture, um, if people adhere to what that is actually what's going on there, uh, a case has also been made that from a historical perspective, the language of being brought away to meet the Lord in the air is actually language from the first century about a Roman emperor coming back from battle. So the idea is meeting him in the air, not to leave and let the earth disintegrate, because I don't think that's what it teaches, is actually to meet the, the returning king as a part of his victory parade back into his domain. And so that kind of ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Anyway, so there's a lot of nuances about what's going on in Thessalonians. But even within the different theories, Kristen, yes, you're right. There are, you know, how does the rapture, um, if people understand it that way, relate to the thousand years reign and the return of Jesus? Where it fits is, is hard to know um, based on the different theories. So I will say that in this, there's even some helpful little charts that kind of like try to map it all out. And uh, Brian Irwin and Tim Perry in this book do it as well. Let me tell you, there's nothing more wild and fascinating than end times theology charts uh, from different thought groups and theories. They're pretty wild. But um, anyway, so yeah, even, even within that, Kristen, there's a variety of schools of thought. What is the millennium? Is it literal? Is it not? Pre-post? How does it relate to the rapture? Uh, again, certain passages from Daniel and Ezekiel, primarily Revelation 20, it's been a source of kind of debate through human history. Um, yeah, it's a big one. Okay, welcome. Okay, second question. Uh, we can glorify God in heaven, so why are we here in the physical realm? Is earth a cosmic penal colony? Or perhaps a test bed to see if we'll choose the right path. Uh, this is a question from uh, Jim uh, Robach. Thank you, Jim. He said we could use his name. Jim's there. And um, it's a fascinating question, and I'm sure a lot of people have had this through time. And to be honest, I think it's a question that a lot of people probably ask, especially when life on earth seems tough and when it seems difficult. Why, why are we here, right, going, th going through all this? So I think to, to share some things that I hope are... are are helpful. I want to back up and provide some big picture to what's going on. So God created a world out of his love, goodness, and wisdom. So everything that God does flows from his love, goodness, and wisdom. He is not untrue to himself. So you think of uh, Psalm 118 verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So God creates the world out of his goodness. Um, and his creation is very good. He calls the physical realm very good, Genesis 1.31, right at the end of the creation story. And so we need to keep that in mind because I think sometimes philosophically through the ages, we have elevated some sort of immaterial, invisible, spiritual existence and made that better than physical world, the physical earth, our physical bodies. But according to the Bible, these have value. They are good. They are part of God's very goodness of creation. Humans are created in his image, Genesis 1.27. Wait, so our purpose as we go through the scriptures, we find our purpose is to be in loving relationship with him and to glorify him. And he gives us certain things by which we could do that. So it's to be in loving relationship with him, to glorify him. 
Right, Isaiah 43, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So as you know, Genesis 3, sin and brokenness come into the world. And so for a long time, God has been working to restore what was lost when that sin and brokenness came into the world. And so this work of restoration and reconciliation comes ultimately in Jesus. Right, and we see this unfold as we go through the Bible. He is our head, we are the body, 1 Corinthians 12. All right, so we're still going through that big picture arc of redemption that we... Uh, learn about in human history. So, one day when Christ returns, the very goodness, and reflecting that phrase from Genesis 1.31, the very goodness of the world will be restored. Revelation 21 gives us this beautiful language, there'll be no more sin, crying, mourning, or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. And in several places, Isaiah, Peter says it, um, a revelation, there'll be the new heavens and the new earth. So things will be recreated to that original intent of that very goodness, right? And so all people who bear God's image and who are in relationship with him through Christ are invited to get in on the ways God is bringing heaven to earth. And so we are engaged in a foreshadowing work. When we worship God, it is a foreshadowing of the new heavens and the new earth. When we love our neighbors, that is a foreshadowing of the new heavens and the new earth. Forgiveness, peace, mission, evangelism, all this is a foreshadowing of the very goodness being restored to creation through the new heavens and the new earth. Now, that's the big picture, but Jesus has not yet returned to usher in this new heavens and the new earth. So we are in these last days, to use the language of the New Testament. So perhaps implicit in the question is the idea that the earth is going to be done away with one day, so why bother? And maybe that's, you can correct me, but... um, but I, think, I don't think that's the case. God's creation has value. Physical existence has value. So one day, everything is going to be transformed. So even passages we hear about you know, consuming fire, this is more to do with the, the purifying quality of fire in the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Eden is restored. Creation restored to its original intent. And so the comment about a penal colony... Um, you know, that implies, I think, we're prisoners, and I know I think you're being tongue-in-cheek tongue here, but it implies being prisoners, but no, we have this freedom in Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ doing this foreshadowing work for the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, testing grounds? Well, there is some testing, and testing occurs on earth, and there's difficulty uh, in our time on earth, and there can be a refining in that uh, as well as we seek to become more holy. And so all of this fits in with what we started with. God freely does things out of his love, goodness, wisdom. As people made in his image, we freely do things. We can freely reject him or we can love him and contribute to his ongoing work in the world. And so what we do in this world has value. It contributes to this foreshadowing work. It contributes to all these wonderful things that God is doing. And so therefore, this has value. We are made on purpose and for a purpose to glorify God and be a blessing to the people around us. And so a final thought on this uh, first part of the question As I was putting this together, I thought of Philippians 1 because I think this is something that Paul himself wrestled with. Uh, He's had some challenges in the world. He wonders whether or not it'd just be better for him to, you know, be away with the Lord or be on earth. And this is what he says, Philippians 1, verses 21 to 26. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Live in the flesh. So if that means I'm to live bodily here on earth... That's going to be fruitful labor. The Lord will use my work for his good purposes. Continuing, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he's acknowledging there's other people who will benefit from his work before he leaves the earth. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify, sorry, to glory in Christ Jesus. So friends, we're, we're not here by accident. We're here on purpose and for a purpose. Since God hasn't given up on the world, neither should we. So big question again, a few thoughts. I hope they are helpful. Jim, supplemental response? All right, you're welcome. A lot of stuff to chew on. The big questions, and I know I say a lot, but that's why we can go back and review it. So thanks, everybody. Interesting. You can always submit through the website questions for this. We do it about once every three months. Peace be with you.